Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk to intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. In Hollywood, there's the famous intersection of Hollywood and Vine, but my guest today may occupy the intersection of Hollywood and hallucination, or perhaps the wider, more interesting intersection of academia, film, drugs, women, and money. He's director, writer, producer, and actor Paul W. Williams. He's author of Harvard Hollywood Hitman and Holy Men, a memoir published by University Press of Kentucky and available on Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and all the usual places. And Paul, welcome to the show. Oh, it's good to be here. See you all this wonderful bagel fry. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Makes you uh, long for New York, doesn't it? <laughs> all right. From the Bronx. Exactly. First question out of the box is, and it's, it, it's uh, almost an open-ended question. How did you view and how do you view yourself in relation to Hollywood? Now? Now and in the past, yeah. In terms of, you well, can do well, it in a couple well, let me just say, let me just say at the outset that what I think is interesting about this book is it's not written from the present wise man's perspective, looking <laughs> back on his life. In fact, it's very much about how I subjectively understood what was going on in my life at the time that things were happening. So really, it's a it's the opposite of a of a celebration of my wonderful life. It's really sort of an admission of all the ridiculous mistakes I've made throughout my life. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> uh, it, it really it's like an anti memoir. It's right. like a, it's a process of destroying my own ego <laughs> uh, because it really has been a, an amazing trip for me. But it's. To most people, it would sound like I threw away the opportunities to become, you know, rich and famous and fly in private jets and have what supposedly we all want. I sort of went the other way. You did. If I had to find one main regret that you had in life, what would that be? Uh, and, and it could be either personal. Say, uh, it could be either uh, personal or career, either way, or both. Oh. Uh, I would say in my career, the biggest mistake, the biggest regret I had was that uh, William Goldman, you know, wrote Butch Casting, the Sundance Kid, wonderful writer, one of the greatest scriptwriters ever to come along. I got a call from a guy named Edgar Sherrick, who is head of ABC Pictures, and he told, he said he's sending over a script by William Goldman. Uh, for me to read. And I wasn't really interested very much in making movies anymore. But, you know, William Goldman, whoa. so they sent over the script for something called Stepford Wives. And it was just an amazingly wonderful script. But more importantly, I saw it as an opportunity to make a film about what I was most interested in, which was the tension between the pure essence on the one hand and the delusion of ego on the other that uh, you know you have all these stepford women running around and uh, none of them having any real hookup and eventually you know we see one or two break through anyway i had a wonderful idea because i knew plenty of you know bad actresses who worked on tv and uh, and i knew a few great actresses who could really you know, who were one quite wonderful. And so 
when I read the script, I called Sherrick and I said, not only do I think this script is fantastic and that I would come out of my semi-retirement to do it, well, I think it was 30 at the time, but that I had a great idea of how to do it. Uh, basically, that I would hire all these bad TV actresses to be the Stepford Wives. <laughs> and I'd plant inside of them three really good actresses <laughs> who start out looking like Stepford Wives and eventually, you know, break through. <laughs> and uh, Sherrick said to me, well, that's pretty far out. I'm going to have to talk to William Goldman about it. And so he calls me back day, calls me back the next day and says, Goldman loves the idea. He thinks it's <laughs> terrific. Let's have a meeting tomorrow. So I spent the evening, I must have done 20 pages of notes talking about how to do each scene in the in the movie. And then we had a five-hour meeting the next day where I explained to Goldman exactly how we could do Stepford Wives and make it brilliant. And he loved it. And uh, so I was really excited. <laughs> and then that night, Edgar Sherrick, the head of ABC Pictures, called me and said, William Goldman loves what you just loves that way of making the movie. He thinks it's you really understand it better than anybody. Now we're going to make a million dollars on this. This is going to be a big hit, right, Paul? And I said, "What? <laughs> I just finished a, a year's studying with an authentic Sufi master full time, so I was really not particularly full of myself at the time." And I said, "Well, look, Edgar, I know what the material is about." I understand how to do it very well, and I think I can do it better than anybody. He said, yeah, yeah, but we're going to make a million dollars, right? We're going to make a million dollars. <laughs> I said, Edgar, I can't get on a chair. He said, you, you go, so I'll call you tomorrow. He calls me, and you better be excited. He calls me the next day <laughs> and says, well, what do you think? We're going to make a million dollars? I say, Edgar, please, I can do a great job with this movie. What do you want me to do? And he goes, I'll call you tomorrow. Anyway, the next day he calls again and he says, all right, now, are we going to make a million billion dollars? I say, Edgar, I, I can only be objective with you. I know this material. I know how to do it. There's a reason Mr. Goldman is excited about my doing it. And he says, uh-uh, I'm going to get somebody who's excited. Goodbye. <laughs> he hangs up. Now, I guess my big regret is uh, I should have said something like, yes, it will make a billion million dollars, which I couldn't say. And that's a, that's a regret because it would have been a wonderful movie. As it turned out, they hired a guy named Brian Forbes, who was an English editor. Yes. Who had no feeling for the material whatsoever. Didn't really understand. You know, he had no way of doing this emotional transformation from, you know, ego to essential, from defensive to flowing he had no feeling for the details of behavior so he took the script and changed it completely and william goldman took his name off the project and left so it, so did, it, it didn't really, make a, it didn't make a million dollars then oh he you got to remember william goldman's a great storyteller right. so he tells a great as jennings lang used to tell me jennings lang was another one of my good champions. Can I just point out? For he the record, always said, "Paul, story. What's the story?" I want to they point out. That much. I yeah. want to point out for I'm the sorry. record. That's right. That Brian Forbes also was a director, and he directed King Rat. Yes, yes. But the thing to remember about Brian Forbes is 
he had very little feeling for American, the niceties of American uh, vernacular. Right. And King Rat was a very English picture. Oh, very with, much so, yes. And with a fantastic performance. Right. <laughs> Uh, by what's his name? Ed, uh, uh, George Siegel was in that. No, no, no. The the guy who was played the uh, lead. Uh, It'll come to he you. He was also, yeah, he was in uh, Gandhi, too. He played the mean lieutenant who guns down all the people in Gandhi. But, anyway. But that story you told, though, it would seem to me that it's emblematic or symbolic of your approach to to life because a simple sentence of yes this is going to make a million or more would have sealed the deal but it's not self-sabotage that you were exploring other worlds at the time so that's why you didn't come up with that sentence yeah well also sometimes i think it's some inner demon i have <laughs> who's insistent on the fact that i get happy and serene <laughs> and rather than rich and famous and uh, he's one out i've been pretty happy for about 50 years <laughs> you're you're down in rio and you look very happy you sound very happy you seem very content with your current life and you were able to write this memoir about your life and all elements of it. And as I mentioned in the beginning, it's fascinating because it involves, as the title indicates, Harvard and Hitmen and Holy Men and all of that, a lot of H's in there. And uh, <laughs> you, you, uh, you found the time to sit down and do it. Was it difficult to write it in your new location? Or did that give you a sense of space or distance from the it, reality? It made it, very, it made it very easy. Two things made it easy. One, the pandemic. Extremely useful because I couldn't leave the house for three and a half years. That's great. Second, I don't know if you know this, but everybody here in Brazil speaks Portuguese. I mean, I speak some Spanish, but nobody, right. they speak Portuguese. Well, you know, everything they say sounds like galoshes. I mean, I tried to learn the language by listening to 37 tapes, but, but they all speak the Sao Paulo Portuguese, which is very, you know, carefully articulated. Here in Rio, they speak something called carioca. Glosses, glosses, you can't understand anything. So... It's great. So I couldn't, I wasn't bothered by people talking around me. I didn't have to leave the house. And God knows the internet makes everything instantly accessible. So I could be around the block. Uh, it, it was, it was great. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, when I look out the window here, I look at about 275 square miles of ocean and forest and lagoons. I mean, it's an amazing old age jail to be put in. <laughs> well, speaking of jails, John Voigt, in, in, you mentioned in your book, he warned you about Hollywood. It, yeah. What was the best piece of advice he gave you in his warning? Do you remember? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think the, well, first let me say that this is, we're talking about John, wow, well, where are we, 1960. You know, 50, 60 years ago. Right. Well, it's your memoirs, of course. Yeah. More than a half a century ago. Yeah, I think he was right about that I really was not tough enough. I'm not a really a tough guy. I don't even like the <laughs> Italian movies, the Italian-American directors. I think they're great directors, but I can't stand violence. I, I like, I am curious yellow. I like sex. I like love. I like... You know, I don't like people going around shooting everybody. I don't like them making love to each other. 
You also said in your book that you have a hard time standing up to collaborators. So you're much better <laughs> or more effective, I would think, as a solo act, which clearly you wrote the, your memoir by yourself, so you're able to get it all out as opposed to dealing with a collaborator. Yes, it's it, I'm, well. I had to write out of it my very first movie myself because I couldn't afford to hire anybody else. To write. <laughs> but now it was. I knew. I mean, in all seriousness, I I've known my whole life that I was going to write this book if I lived long enough. And you have. And I, I and I kept notes. And I was very. I mean, in nineteen about thirty years ago. So I'm eight, around eighty now. Fifty when I was around fifty, I met with Naira Naira Ikira who's a famous, was a famous UN oral historian. And I sat with her for two hours a day for 10 days and paid her some money uh, for her to interview me carefully. And uh, because I knew I would be forgetting a lot of the details of the wonderful stories. Very wise, so, yes. And Very so that I, I knew I was going to write this book one day. But I must say that the reason for writing it changed. Originally, the real reason was that I always wanted to be a great character. I didn't want to be a great director or a great writer. <laughs> I wanted to have a great life. I wanted to be like, you know, a character in Fitzgerald or, uh, you know, uh, Hemingway or something. Right. And so I managed to live quite an adventurous life. And I thought that's when I get old, I'll tell the story of that. When you had that interview arranged for those 10 days, were those recorded interviews or just transcribed interviews or both? No, they were, they were recorded and transcribed. Oh, excellent idea. I wish I had thought of it. Yes. <laughs> so, but it's interesting that when I got into my 70s, by that time, I had made enough progress in the, uh, what would you call, in my life cycle towards uh, a more transcendent understanding of the world, that I realized it was important to write this stuff down to empty myself that there really is this process of letting it all go. And that's why I wrote it in the way I did, without trying to build myself up or without trying to, to you know, make it better than it was or to... I tried to tell it with the emotion and, and the accuracy that it was remembered in my own brain to sure. get it out of my brain. And yeah. so I still remember once I used, was smoking... Gonzo Weed with Waldo Salt, who is a great, another great screenwriter. He wrote Midnight Cowboy and uh, did he do Coming Home? Anyway, Waldo said to me, before you write a screenplay, write a book about all the characters before the screenplay starts. So you know everything about every one of them. And then when you come to write the screenplay, all you got to do is pick out this, the location and put the characters in the location and they will start speaking to you because you're not thinking it. Yeah. Great idea. Uh, so no, he's a brilliant guy. I mean, Waldo Salt, they named the screenwriting award for him at the writer's guild after him. Anyway. You said, uh, Paul, you said something earlier or just a moment ago that actually makes a lot of sense. A lot of people reach a certain age and they declutter their lives of objects and possessions. What you were talking about was decluttering your, your life of, all the information and memories you had. It's a parallel approach, but right. it's very effective. And I could see why you would do that because now you've cleansed yourself in a way, metaphorically yeah. and emotionally. And now you can go on and do the current stuff that you do and enjoy well, it more, I would think. Well, well, what it allows you to do is be ever more fully in the moment and less distracted. 
which frankly is part of the approach to death, your own death. I mean, most people, well, Woody Allen, I love, he, he said, you know, I'm not giving a penny to this film preservation business. The only reason we make films is to avoid thinking about that. But uh, uh, anyway, but I think this thing about approaching, you have to really, it's like a murderer. I once actually wrote a screenplay. It was like Groundhog Day about killing one of my ex-partners. Uh, and and I kept, you know, having getting it wrong, and I had to keep doing it over and over again. And I wrote the script, and I showed it to John Cleese's ex-wife, actually, who was a shrink. And she read it and said, "You know, you're going to kill this guy for real. This is how a this is how a, a murderer prepares. You make it real enough for yourself every day." Until when you comes time to do it, it's no big deal. You're just doing what you've thought about for a year. Oh my! So I, I stopped pursuing that project. Yeah, I would think so. And, and but still, there is a parallel to right now being a, you know close to eighty. Well, and you know my and my Ed Preston, who was my partner for many years, died a couple of weeks ago. And well, Jimmy Andronica, who was my collaborator for many years, also died. Were Tuesday, you, the same day this book was published. Were you in touch with Ed Pressman even after all the problems you two had? Uh, were you still yes. in touch with him? Yes, because I had I had moved on uh, in terms of my ego. Gotcha. You know, most of my friends were still just wanting to become rich and famous and powerful and defensive. I couldn't care less. So Ed couldn't believe that I would actually not kick his ass every right. time I saw him. Right. But yeah, your book uh, is fascinating. I want to let our audience know that it's not just your memoir. It's also interesting little things that nobody thinks about, such as uh, how to cook bell peppers correctly uh, through Coppola. And then just little insights. Orson Welles, you say, who said, ask not what you can do for your country, ask what's for lunch, which kind of <laughs> sums up Orson Welles. And you also, even little vignettes such as you said, Walter Matthau is the most centered American I have met, which yeah. is fascinating to me because a lot of people think of Walter Matthau a certain way, either comedically or in other ways. But wh why, why was that? Why did you feel he was the most centered? You mentioned in your book, of course, that he would be able to be at ease anywhere he went. Is that the main reason that you called him that? Well, no, the, the, the main reason was because Jennings Lang, who is quite a character, he used to invite me up to his office three times a week in the morning when I was on the lot making nunzio, preparing nunzio. And I'd come up there and he'd have a bottle of, you know, booze, uh, whiskey, and he'd be behind his desk at a chair for me and he had a chair for Walter Matthau. And Matthau would come by. We were the three Jews up in the tower. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, frankly, it was, uh, it was you know, Jennings liked me, and it was uh, I felt honored to be in included with him in math out, frankly. And I, Jennings would answer the phone. Oh, yeah, yeah. You tell that, uh, what was it, James Mason, that either he takes the script, it's 250000 we start the day after tomorrow, okay? No, he can't read it. It's a piece of shit. <laughs> and either he takes this film or I'll get somebody else tomorrow. And he'd hang up. And Walter would be sitting there, and he, Walter was bigger than anything. He was just an immense presence and unruffable, and a, a gaze that was loving. He was like a, he was the only time I ever saw anybody as powerful as him was when I met. I spent time with the Dalai Lama's principal teacher, 
a guy named Dingo, uh, Dingo, Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche. And he and Mapau were the two people I met that had these incredible presences. But of course, Mapau was in the West, so we don't put him in robes. <laughs> and, you know, and then later, of course, at the Academy Awards, and I was fairly friendly with Jack Nicholson at that time. And at the awards, I watched Jack on the stage, you know, in when they went to commercial. Right. And he, like everybody else, you know, relaxed in between takes and got ready as they counted 10, 9, 8, we're going back on. But Walter was on the stage with Jack. He couldn't tell less whether it was on or off or what. He was the same all the time. He was great. Great man. You have great stories in the book. Obviously, we can only barely touch your life, but I think people should read the book because it's a fascinating overview of not just Hollywood, but of a certain time and place, personalities that most people know about. Yes, you're raising your hand. <laughs> no, I forgot. The main reason most people will read this book is all the insights on the new Hollywood. The Palma, Coppola, Scorsese, Keitel, De Niro. That too, we were all a yeah. bunch. We, we were all running around together at that time. Right. But there's and so many elements. That's really in... why people like will read the book, I think. Yes, but there's so much more to it in the book as well. Yeah. But you're right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you even have the CIA in the book with Robert Gates. So you go from Hollywood to Gates. I think that's an interesting leap as well. <laughs> Whoa, well, you, there's a lot. I, there's a lot I didn't put in the book. But uh, <laughs> yes, Gates was an amazing guy. I mean, because, well, you know, I, I won't tell that whole story. It's in the book. But through a series of coincidences, I was able to convince Tom Monahan, who had founded Domino's Pizza, Right. And sold it to Bain Capital for $1.4 billion to hire me to produce his movie about Pope John Paul II. And my idea, frankly, for the movie was to follow Aliaka, the assassin who tried to take the, to kill the Pope and follow the young priest, Carl Vaitia, on his progress to becoming Pope. And only at the very end of the end in the assassin's hotel room. I mean, hotel room, jail room. <laughs> My own. Anyway, make a long story short. While I was doing doing the preparation for that movie, I was very interested in how the assassins worked, and that a friend of mine from Harvard, who had been head of the Environmental Protection Agency under George H. W. Bush, knew Casey and all of the people, and he introduced me. So I went down to the University of Texas. George Bush International, and spent a couple of days with him, and he pretty much told me how they work assassinations. You know, they meet somebody, the assassin, they find some nutcase who wants to do what they want to do. He doesn't know it. He doesn't even know they're working for you. All he knows is he suddenly got a friend who will give him money and right. girls and guns and make everything work right. Well, it almost sounds like Lee Harvey Oswald, doesn't it? Well, it, it sounds exactly <laughs> like Lee And basically, they get the nutcase to do it, and they make sure he gets it right because they have other people doing the shooting as well. And then after the event, they kill him. So he can. And, and Gates said to me, look, this is no secret. That's how we do it. That's how the Russians do it. That's how the Bulgarians do it. That's how you do it if you're in this business. Right. So... Uh, <laughs> that was quite an eye-opener. <laughs> I would say so. You know, another reason for people to read your book, if you're an aspiring filmmaker, you have nuggets throughout the book of film advice, including your own, which I thought was fascinating about how you 
when you start shooting a film, you have the actor walk into the frame from the very beginning, even if you don't, you don't use that. So you're able to edit. And also when they leave the frame, a clean exit. So you're able to edit much easier. And then you had the story of Karen Black explaining you, to you how to act in a sense by going over the line in a flat monotone voice several times until you're totally comfortable. 20, with it. 20, 20 times. 20 times. <laughs> and I didn't have a figure in my head, but yeah, 20 times. And that way you're able to concentrate on the acting once you actually do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's so funny had- that first the first thing about having the people enter and exit the frame was the advice I gave Spielberg and Crichton. Right. Uh, when I was ordered to have lunch with them by Sid Schreinberg. Yeah. But looking uh, but Paul, looking at your whole book, we have a couple of minutes left, but I, looking at your whole book from your perspective and your whole life from your perspective and your whole career from your perspective, who was the most significant person that you either met or lived with or dealt with or even just had a brief encounter with that left that that impression on you for the rest of your life? Is there one person that just strikes you in that way? You've met so many people and you write about it in your book. Uh, that's very interesting question because it, it depends on your point of view about who I am at this point. No, I'm, <laughs> no <laughs> it's more your point of view, not mine. <laughs> well, I have to say at this point in my life, I would have to say that the most important guy I met was uh, this guy, Dilgo, uh, who is the current Dalai Lama's teacher. And uh, the, the reason he was so important to me is that he teaches He's the great vision teacher. He doesn't talk. He doesn't say anything. He can actually send, he can introduce you to distant seeing. He, you can. I could go to India and see India and then come back to the room in, in California. No drugs, no hallucinations. In other words, I'm trained in the psychology of perception. I, mean, I can check out parallax, moving horizons. Can you turn around the corner? It wasn't a hallucination. When I went, when he sent, see, I went to him and I, it's a long story, but basically I said, hey, hey, how do you like being on the road trying to raise money to get your, save your texts from the Chinese? And he looked at me and without touching me, he pushed my head to the side and then the wall disappeared. And I was in something that looked to me like India or Bhutan. And I checked it all out from the psychology of Persino, from how the how you perceive things, parallel. Anyway, and when in my heart I realized I was in this place, it, I warmed all over, and the, the wall reappeared. And I was back with him in the room, and then he did something called tantric theater on me, in which I explained all my brilliant theories about how smart I was to understand everything. And every time I said something. He would make it disappear just by saying a word or two and turn it into nothing. So that at the end of it, I was in total void and emptiness. And that's when I decided to study acting, the Sandy Meisner technique, because I realized that the same way that the Eastern gurus let go to become empty. So in the Meisner technique, good actors, you express whatever you're feeling to get empty. If you express it accurately, you're empty and you're ready for the next feeling. It's like east and west, 180 degrees opposite. Right. One detaches to get empty, the other expresses to get empty. So I would have to say that Delgo had, you know, and the fact that I later, I didn't know who he was when I met him actually, but later I found out he was the current Dalai Lama's principal teacher. 
So that made me think, oh, well, maybe I'm not full of shit. <laughs> well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been director. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> My guest has been director, writer, producer, and actor Paul W. Williams, author of Harvard, Hollywood, Hitman, and Holy Men, a memoir published by University Press of Kentucky and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And Paul, thanks for being on the show. Hey, I had a good time. Thank you. And join us every Thursday. Thank you. Thank you. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Iris Everything Bagel.